When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it, because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we're here to break down all that is happening with the New York football Giants. And you can hit us up on Twitter at hashtag GiantsChat to get involved in the conversation. As a reminder, you can find the archive of this show on our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So today we are continuing our opponent preview series, and we are moving along in order of the schedule. We are now up to week number five, Sunday, October 9th. The Giants are going to battle the Packers in London, a very early start, a 9.30 a.m. Eastern kickoff, and to get more into the Green Bay Packers and what to expect from them this season and some of their major storylines, we are now joined by Matt Schneidman, who covers the team for The Athletic. Matt, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope all is well. How's everything on your end? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. A pleasure to have you on the program. And Matt, I want to start with the biggest storyline, and that is clearly the fact that the Packers parted ways with Devontae Adams, trading him to the Raiders. So I think the big mystery is, well, are the Packers going to have somebody to step in for Devontae Adams? Or what I would argue, which I think is a little bit more interesting to unravel, and I'm curious your perspective, could you argue, Matt, that the Packers may actually be more of a dangerous team this year now that Aaron can't lean on one wide receiver in particular and perhaps will spread the wealth a little bit more. How much could that maybe come to fruition? I think that could help them in some ways, but I'm not going to sit here and say the Packers are a more dangerous team without Devontae Adams. I don't think anyone in that building would tell you that. You know, he's arguably the best wide receiver in football. But Aaron Rodgers did tell us a couple weeks ago, you know, probably 80% of the passing plays they ran on offense were designed for Devontae Adams. So, well, they're not going to be a more dangerous offense because there's no addition by subtraction when you're taking away the best receiver in the league. It will allow him to, you know, spread the wealth and maybe make things a little bit more uh, unpredictable, if you will, for opposing defenses. They don't really have a guy who's a bona fide number one. And even though teams knew the ball was going to Devontae, they couldn't really stop him. Now there's the unpredictability of who's going to get 
most of the targets. There's Randall Cobb. There's Alan Lazard. Sammy Watkins is kind of their uh, reclamation project this year. There's a couple of promising young guys in Amari Rogers and Christian Watson, their second-round pick. Romeo Dubs from Nevada, their, their rookie fourth-rounder. So I think more of a by-committee approach will be the way the Packers go in the passing game this year. They certainly have viable options at tight end and running back who have been big parts in the passing game in years past. And then the wild card, I would say, is whether or not they sign a free agent wide receiver either right before training camp, during training camp, early in the season, maybe a Julio Jones type of guy. You know, Matt LaFleur was was on the Falcons' offensive staff when the Falcons went to the Super Bowl against the Patriots a couple years ago with Julio Jones, who dominated the Packers in the NFC title game that year. So maybe they take a flyer on him for uh, a nice red zone threat to help replace Adams. Let me ask you about the trigger man before we go to the rest of the skill positions and the other guys on offense. I mean, my goodness, Aaron Rodgers has just put up two Herculean seasons back-to-back despite all the headlines and all the controversies and all the chatter and everything else that went on around him. This guy has gone on the field and put up. He's 38 years old, for God's sakes. When's he going to get old? When's he going to start cracking and start going on to the other end of the mountain here? Well, he's said to us, when he feels that time coming, he will retire. And he's still playing, so I don't think he feels that time coming. And he's probably the best judge of of that, uh, more so than myself or anyone else. Listen, we haven't seen any signs of him slowing down. And I don't think losing his best receiver will make him fall off a cliff, per se. I, I think one of the most interesting nuggets about this whole situation is the Packers are 7-0 and in three years under Matt LaFleur when Devontae Adams is not on the field. Aaron Rodgers has averaged about 293 passing yards per game in those seven games and a shade under three touchdown passes per game. The Packers and Aaron Rodgers, who is a huge part in calling plays on this offense and how this offense runs, not taking anything away from Matt LaFleur, can find ways to make things work. If there's a single quarterback in this league who can elevate guys and make them better, uh, it's Aaron Rodgers. So uh, I think he is the the rising tide that lifts all ships. Um, he's shown no signs of slowing down. Maybe his mobility in the pocket isn't as great as it used to be. But he's playing this year. He's 100% bought in. He signed a three-year extension pretty much. But it is essentially a one-year deal, which he confirmed to us a couple weeks ago. He'll reevaluate his future after this season. But for the 2022 season, for that London game, He's 100% bought in, he'll be here, and I see no reason why he can't contend for his third straight MVP. Gee, that makes me feel a whole lot better. And that's sarcasm <laughs> if, uh, if you haven't picked up on it. <laughs> With respect to the guys that protect him, Matt, You've got David Bakhtiari, who clearly was dealing with an injury for the bulk of last season. They lose Billy Turner in free agency. Elton Jenkins has proven to be an extremely versatile guy. I'm not saying that they've had a major loss, but where would you best classify the state of this offensive line and the return of Bakhtiari, how much that perhaps could stabilize some of the movable parts that they dealt with last season? I would say it's in flux. And if there's any team in the league known for sturdy offensive line play, um, it's the Green Bay Packers. But David Bakhtiari is the big question mark. He's a five-time All-Pro. You know, before he tore his ACL, he was on path to be an NFL Hall of Famer. But then he tore his ACL in practice on December 31st, 2020. Didn't play in a game until Week 18 last season, 27 offensive snaps 
in that meaningless game against the Lions when the Packers had already secured the top seed, re-injured it in that game, didn't play in the playoffs against the 49ers, and hasn't practiced this offseason yet. It's starting to become a concern. It won't be officially a concern until he's not on the field to start training camp on July 27th. Matt LaFleur said they anticipate him being on the field. I think that's the point where we'll say, okay, is this something to really worry about? But if you have David Bakhtiari at full health on the field, that changes everything. Even if you don't have Elton Jenkins, who's one of the most versatile, best offensive linemen in the game. He was a Pro Bowl starter at left guard in his second year in the league and then suffered a season-ending knee injury in Week 11 last year. He'll probably miss about the first half of this season. Um, But if they can get him back, David Bakhtiari back, it can be one of the best O-lines in the league. And obviously I don't expect Jenkins to be there when the Packers play the Giants, but they've got a couple young guys on that line who impressed last season. John Runyon Jr., uh, been in the league for a couple years out of Michigan. Josh Myers, their second-year center from Ohio State. Royce Newman's probably going to be at right guard, their second-year right guard from Ole Miss. And then Josh Nyman, uh, who was an undrafted free agent in 2019 out of Virginia Tech, who kind of had to step in out of nowhere last year and really impressed. So I'd expect him to slide in at right tackle. But really, like you said, the big question uh, that will affect everything else is will David Bakhtiari be healthy? Because a 38-year-old future Hall of Fame quarterback is only effective if he stays on his feet. And having an all-pro left tackle in there will certainly go a long way in ensuring that. We also know a running game can help there, too. And and after back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons where it seemed like Aaron Jones was a guy they could really rely on, Last year, not quite as much. It looked as though like he wasn't as much of a workhorse as he had been before. How do you see that playing out this season, especially in light of the fact that Adams isn't there in the passing game? Yeah, I think part of the reason you saw Aaron Jones' numbers dip a little bit last year was because of the emergence of A.J. Dillon as a viable number two. You know, With all due respect to Jamal Williams, who was their number two the, the, the past couple years before it, last year, A.J. Dillon's a better, you know, compliment to Aaron Jones. And I say compliment because Matt LaFleur told us last season he doesn't see Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon as starter and backup. He sees them as 1A and 1B. And of the top 25 running backs in rushing yards last year, only two teams had two guys within that top 25, the Broncos with Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon and the Packers with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. Right. Same thing with receiving yards. Among the top 20, only two teams had two guys in the top 20. The Jets with Ty Johnson and Michael Carter and the Packers were there in Jones and A.J. Dillon. So while there's not necessarily an all-pro running back in the Packers room like a Derrick Henry or an Alvin Kamara or Dalvin Cook, you got two guys who are pretty darn close that compose maybe the best one-two tandem in the league, and they can both do a little bit of everything, and that's what makes them so dangerous. And I expect them to get even more of a workload without Devontae Adams. You know, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers mentioned a couple weeks ago how the offense will change without Devontae Adams. One of the first things he mentioned was Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon having a bigger role. And in games that, that Devontae Adams hasn't played in the last three years, those two guys have had to really pick up the slack. And that certainly is a wise game plan, given the versatility that you just mentioned that both of those backs bring to the table as we're talking with Matt Schneidman, who covers the Packers for the Athletic, getting set for the Giants-Packers game in London in week number five on October 9th. We were talking about the injuries on the offensive line, Matt, earlier, and I think another player that is important to note who also should be back in the fold is at the tight end spot, and that is Robert Tunyon, because I think a lot of people outside Green Bay forget two years ago 
He had a solid season. He had 11 touchdowns. He was a huge red zone target, and he came through. Unfortunately, he suffered the torn ACL in October last year. How much of a bonus is it to get him back, considering you lose Devontae Adams and maybe, Matt, how much could he become more of a number one or a number two in the passing game because of some of the question marks in that receiving court? Oh, no doubt. It's massive to get him back healthy. Now, I don't know if he'll be ready for week one, but he should be ready when the Packers and Giants play in London. Um, it, it was kind of unfortunate how that torn ACL happened. It was in late in the fourth quarter of uh, that Thursday night game against the Cardinals when the Packers went into Arizona and gave the Cardinals their first loss of the season without Devontae Adams, Marquez Valdez, Scantling, or Alan Lazar, their top three receivers. And it was at the end of a 33-yard catch-and-run where Tunyon kind of made some guys miss and then tore his ACL. You mentioned it. Two years ago, he tied Travis Kelsey for the most touchdown catches of any tight end in the NFL with 11. He didn't make the Pro Bowl because that was Evan Engram, <laughs> who you guys know well. But uh, And there was kind of some, uh, some uh, hubbub about that on Twitter. But he's a really good pass catcher. He doesn't drop the ball. Uh, if that, I, I say he doesn't drop the ball in 2020. He didn't have any drops. I think he had one or two maybe last year. His production wasn't as prolific through the first half of last season before that injury. But if you look at the second half of last season, the Packers sorely needed a pass-catching option at tight end. They have Mercedes Lewis, who's damn near 40 years old. They have Dominique Daphne, Tyler Davis, Josiah DeGuara. But those guys are all more H-back, blocking-type tight ends who catch some passes, but not as well as Robert Tunyon. So not only is it important to get him back in a year when they do have Devontae Adams, but without Devontae Adams and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who signed with the Chiefs in free agency, it's that much more important to get a really sturdy, reliable pass catcher like Robert Tunyon back, even if he's not a wide receiver, per se. Let me flop it over to defense. We'll start with the pass rush. Rashawn Gary had a breakout season in his third year in the NFL. We know what the M.O. is. You always ask players, hey, in year number three, let's show us what you got. And he came up and, and put out a good season. Him, in combination with Preston Smith, provided some good heat on the quarterback. Uh, what is Gary's upside, and how much does Preston Smith have left? I think Gary's upside, he can be a pro bowler and all pro. For the first couple of years of his career, he was kind of, stuck behind the Smiths, the Darius and Preston, the Darius who they released this offseason. He's now with the Vikings. But when they drafted Rashawn Gary 12th overall in 2019, he was the number four pass rusher. They used a top 15 pick on a number four guy. He was behind the Smiths and Kyler Fackrell, who you guys also know well. Um, and then his second year, he was still the number three. Last year was kind of the first year when he was really tasked with a lot of responsibility because the Darius Smith injured his back in week one and didn't play again until the playoffs. We saw what Rashawn Gary can really be with with a full workload. Preston Smith just signed a multi-year extension. I don't know if he'll be here for all of those years, but um, he showed signs of life. And a guy that can, you know, even as he gets older in this league, can really produce. It's who they have behind that at edge rusher. And, and I know, you know, talking number three, number four edge rushers on here isn't probably appealing, but they've got a really solid number two. But both those guys only played about 65% of the defensive snaps last year. So it's who comes in after them that can get pressure on the quarterback. And they don't really have an answer for that yet. But yeah, as for Rashawn Gary, that's a really solid uh, edge rusher who's one of the best young defenders in this league. And I, I wouldn't be surprised 
if he really ascends to superstardom this year. Matt, when you look at the defense overall last season, they were without Zadarius Smith and Jair Alexander, two of their top players at their respective positions. And despite that, I thought the Packers' defense was extremely impressive. And you can make the case we maybe saw one of the most balanced Green Bay teams in comparison to their previous years, and you know this well from covering the team, I guess what I'm getting at is how much did the unit overall turn the corner a bit last season under Joe Barry and the fact that they lost to Darius Smith but already played an entire season essentially without him and Jair Alexander who just got an extension. Hopefully he'll be back to full health. You could argue maybe they're even stronger this year because of some of the key weapons that are back in the fold. No doubt. It was kind of a tale of two seasons for the Packers defense last year with Joe Barry as their first-year coordinator. From weeks you know, 4 to 10, they were probably the best defense in the league. They, I don't think yep. they allowed more than 21 points in any game in that stretch. But then from weeks 11 to the end of the season, they were one of the worst defenses in the league, starting with that 34-31 loss, I believe it was, to the Vikings in week 11. And then in the playoffs, they held the 49ers to to six points you know the 49ers won in part because they returned a, a block punt for a touchdown that's not on the defense but uh this defense can be really good not only do they return jair alexander who's now the highest paid cornerback in league history uh an all pro caliber player but they have rasul douglas back who they signed uh, off the cardinals practice squad in week five last season to add depth when alexander went down uh, and eventually missed, I believe it was 13 games. And he just broke onto the scene, had a couple pick sixes, a couple really timely interceptions. And then Eric Stokes, who was their first-round pick in 2021, who had a really nice rookie season. Then they return Adrian Amos and Darnell Savage Jr. as their safeties, one of the one of the best safety tandems in the league. Their secondary is probably on paper the best in the league. Uh, and then they have Devondre Campbell, who was a first-team All-Pro inside linebacker last year. They drafted Quay Walker uh, in the, with their first pick in the draft, uh, the, the Georgia middle linebacker. And they reassured the defensive line. They bring back Kenny Clark, who was a pro bowler last year, drafted Devontae Wyatt from Georgia in the first round, and have a couple depth pieces behind that. On paper, this should be a really, really good defense, a, a team that carries them. They, they might have to switch their identity from a team – that wins games passing the ball to a team that wins games with their defense. They can do it on paper, but there have been plenty of teams in the NFL in recent years who are really good on paper but don't execute. But this Packers team has all the ingredients that it takes to succeed. I'm so glad you brought up Devontae Wyatt and Quay Walker, their two first-round picks this past spring, because I'm curious as to how much of a role you think they'll have immediately in this defense. Yeah, I don't know about Devontae Wyatt during offseason work he wasn't working with the starters um there were a couple other defensive linemen behind Kenny Clark who were getting that responsibility first but hey by week one certainly week five he could be out there Quay Walker uh was working with the starters Devondre Campbell's obviously their number one at the position they don't expect and, and I certainly don't expect Quay Walker to take over and become their main middle linebacker but you know what the people who made the decision to draft him have said, uh, Brian Gutekunst mainly, the general manager, is that he'll give them more kind of positional versatility. Instead of having to play an extra DB, uh, they, they can kind of mix and match with an inside linebacker who can defend against the pass equally as well as he can defend against the run. 
it'll help disguise some things in terms of kind of giving giving off the notion that they're defending against the run, but then Quay Walker drops back in coverage because he's more capable of doing that than inside linebackers they've had here in years past. So they're really high on both of these guys. And, hey, it's not a bad formula to say, let's just use two first-round picks on, on two starters from one of the best defenses in college football history. You know, you can't, you can't blame that. So I think Quay Walker will probably have a bigger role right at the start especially in sets when they use multiple inside linebackers. But I wouldn't be surprised if Devontae Wyatt uh, has a pretty significant role uh, right away, maybe a couple weeks into the season for a run defense that has really been among the league's worst in the past couple seasons. Matt, continuing with the theme of some new faces joining the squad, I want to go to special teams because as you were referencing against the San Francisco 49ers in the playoffs, the defense did its job, offense disappointed, but special teams certainly didn't help because it dramatically changed field position. And one of the moves they made this offseason, I'm not even talking about the players, adding Rich Basaccia as the special teams coordinator who's a well-respected individual in the league, did a great job taking over as the interim head coach of the Raiders last season. How much could you argue maybe that's the most valuable move they made to help turn around this special teams unit this season? Listen, the, the pack, in Rick Gosselin's special teams rankings, who's been ranking special teams yeah. for maybe longer than I've been alive. <laughs> He's the guru <laughs> over there. <laughs> Absolutely. had the He had the Packers 32nd in the league uh, last season, and rightfully so. I mean, this is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately league, so everyone will remember the catastrophe against the 49ers when they let up a long uh, kick return to Debo Samuel to start the second half and mm-hmm. the block punt return for a mm-hmm. touchdown. And only having 10 guys on the field to defend against Robbie Gould's game-winning field goal attempt. But that was pretty much the Packers' special teams all season. They were terrible all season. Yep. Um, <laughs> if they can go from 32nd into the top 20, that would make a, a world of a difference. I think an interesting nugget is of the 14 teams to make the playoffs last season, the Raiders used the highest percentage of starters on special teams during the regular season. The Packers used the fewest percentage of starters on special teams during the regular season. Is it a coincidence that the lowest team on that list hired the coordinator from the highest team on that list? I don't think that's a coincidence. And listen, in off-season work a couple weeks ago, we saw Pro Bowl running back Aaron Jones working on punt protection. We saw Devondre Campbell working on punt team. We saw Adrian Amos, a perennial Pro Bowl safety, working on punt team. Like That probably won't make Packer fans feel good, but it's all hands on deck. And that's kind of Rich Bisaccia's motto is just do whatever it takes. And the, the expectation is anything better than worse. So it's not like this huge feeling that he has to live up to, but... If they can get things figured out on special teams, and that's kind of been an afterthought here in Green Bay for for the last decade or two, then that can really, really change things around here. We can say all we want about you know finding pass-catching threats without Devontae Adams or the guys they're getting back on defense, but their season ended because of their special teams, essentially. They, Aaron Rodgers played like crap in that game, but their special teams was terrible all season. If they can get that fixed, then we might be talking about a team that can win a Super Bowl. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Do you think it's more embarrassing to dye your hair or to have 
Hair plugs. I don't think either are embarrassing if you're not trying to conceal it and act like you didn't. Okay, so you think if you just come out and go, I got hair plugs. Yeah, like check out these hair plugs. I mean, don't just walk around, hey, tapping, hey, hey, stranger, I don't want you thinking this is natural. You know, but I mean, <laughs> do you, you have to do that with everyone you meet? try to act like they, uh, you know what I mean. Yeah, but I mean, like, like John Cena got it. You know, when John Cena came back to wrestling, he had a bald spot, and now he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You think he should be required in all interviews to say, look, by the way, I covered up my bald spot? Yeah, I guess it's weird. I mean, you don't wear a sign or like put a sign in your yard, but. All right, so what about toupees? Those are the most obvious. I but let's like. say you're like Bill Self and you can get it to where it looks good. His is magical. I don't even know if his is a toupee. It is. Though. I think he went into the future and had a procedure we haven't even discovered yet. And this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, I'm going to have to ask you about a former Packer, if I can, for just a second, because as we've exhausted their roster questions, Kevin King was a corner who came out of Washington with a, with a lot of plaudits and a lot of headlines, and he's had a lot of injuries during his course of his time in Green Bay, and right now he's a street-free agent. Uh, can you give me a quick thumbnail on what Kevin King could bring to the table? I, I know the Giants have a young cornerback core, and he would probably be one of the guys, if a team was looking to bring a veteran into the secondary, he would be a guy I think would be of some interest. What do you think he's got to offer somebody at this point? Or do you think he's just too broken down, he just can't get it done on the field? Well, when he's healthy, he's not a bad cornerback. You know, in 2019, when he played 15 games, he was top five in the league in interceptions and passes defense. He's not fast by NFL standards, but he's a big body. You know, 50-50 balls, he'll probably win the majority of them. Um, But he just can't stay healthy. That was his big knock here in Green Bay. He was just always, always hurt. And it was something different, just couldn't stay on the field. And then last season, uh, Eric Stokes, as a rookie, kind of took Kevin King's spot. Him and Rasul Douglas manned the outside cornerback roles when when Jair Alexander was hurt. Now, if you can get 13, 14 games out of Kevin King, you're going to have a guy who's a starting caliber guy. But the Packers haven't re-signed him because not only do they have probably the best cornerback trio in the league on paper, but... You just can't count on him to stay healthy. And there's only so many chances you can give a guy. Sure. It's not not always his fault, but at some point when you're five seasons into the league like Kevin King is, and he's yet to play, you know, a really full, healthy, solid season outside of one year, then you just got to give up on it and move on. But if a team can sign him for really cheap as a number three corner or maybe even a number two for a really cornerback needy team – I think you're getting a pretty solid player, but it all depends on whether he can stay on the field. Attitude-wise, is he the mentoring type? Because I suspect the team with the young secondary would want a big brother uh, if they're going to sign someone of that nature. Yeah, he he was great in the locker room, from what I can tell. I mean, we never really know for sure, but um, he seems like a guy that is is a really good locker room guy and definitely could take on that role. Allah, another Packer who didn't really fit here for a lack of production, and then went to the Giants, Blake Martinez. 
Yeah, that's another great example. Absolutely. Matt, last one for me. I want to head back to special teams because here with the Giants, we experienced Graham Gano, veteran kicker, and the impact he had on the roster. And Green Bay also has an extremely experienced kicker in Mason Crosby. However, you look at his numbers last year, and he had an extremely down year in terms of field goal percentage. It was just below 74. I believe it was that Bengals game that went down to the wire. He had multiple misses, opportunities to finish it off. How worried are they or how concerned are they that he is, I don't want to say maybe falling off a cliff, that may be too extreme, but certainly taking a bit of a nosedive in comparison to how consistent he's been and how much perhaps was last season maybe a product of the special teams struggling overall than maybe him falling off a little? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of his fault, but the, the main theme every time whether it's Matt LaFleur or Brian Gutekunst, is, is asked about Crosby's misses. And he missed 10 field goals last season, including the playoffs, which was the most in the NFL. Yeah. Um, they bring up kind of the operation. They made a long snapper change in season. They had uh, a new punter or holder in Corey Bajorquez. They were not great. Hunter Bradley, who started the season as the long snapper, was cut because obviously he was not good enough. Steven Wordle wasn't great, and now he has long snapper competition in training camp. Uh, Corey Bajorquez, they did not re-sign him as a punter. Instead, they went and got Pat O'Donnell, who, had, who has been punting for the Bears for the last eight seasons, and Brian Gutekunst said it was mainly because of his prowess as a holder. Yes, Mason Crosby is not devoid of blame, uh, nor should he be if he misses nine field goals during the regular season, but there were protection issues. There were snapping issues. There were holding issues. And when we sat down with Brian Gutekunst, I believe it was in February, he called Mason Crosby a championship-caliber kicker. This is a guy, they drafted him in the sixth round in 2007. He has not missed a single regular season or postseason game since the Packers drafted him. He's been a model of consistency who did not miss a field goal in 2021 and then didn't miss one for the first four weeks of, or I, I should say didn't miss one in 2020 and then didn't miss one for the first four weeks of 2021 before he missed three against the Bengals in week five. But they're hoping this season or last season was just an outlier. They have competition for him. Gabe Burkich, who was uh, a finalist for the Lou Groza Award at Oklahoma last year, is their latest competition for him. They kind of cycled through guys to compete with him this offseason. But I fully expect Mason Crosby to be the Packers kicker this year. This is a guy who's done it, and, and – there's the intangible aspect of kicking in Lambeau Field is not easy, and he's been doing it for 15 years, and it's, you can't just come in here and learn how the wind works and all that stuff. I think Mason Crosby is going to be the guy, and the Packers just hope that the struggles last season were more so the guys around him than Mason Crosby himself. Yeah, that's a great point about the weather. I think the Giants know that very well, too, with respect to the winds at the Meadowlands. You need somebody that has that comfort zone because that's a big part of having success and showcasing consistency. He is Matt Schneidman, who covers the Green Bay Packers for the Athletic. It's a Week 5 matchup. It's the Giants and the Packers in London in the early stages of the season. Well, Matt, greatly appreciate the time and the insight, and we look forward to talking down the road. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, guys. Great talk. You got it. Our pleasure. Matt Schneidman with some great insight into what to expect from this Packers team heading into the season. A Green Bay team that 
was very close to getting to the Super Bowl this season, but unfortunately had some postseason developments in terms of special teams and the offense didn't meet the defensive prowess as we saw that side of the ball made major strides. And as we do on each of these programs, Paul, it's always good to now give our perspective on what we see in the upcoming Giants opponents. And Clearly, the biggest storyline is where we, I think, started this conversation with Matt. You take Devontae Adams out of the equation. That was an interesting number that he threw out, Paul, where he said Aaron Rodgers told the media that about 80% of the plays, right, were run for Devontae Adams. That is astronomical. I mean, I had to take a step back in like 80%? Yeah. Wow. Before we go anywhere else, and you know, Lance, I mean, I'm in my 40th NFL season now covering this league. I've never heard that before. Never. That's why I took a step back when I was listening to what he was talking about. 81%. I I thought there was something wrong with the phone line. (laughs) 81% of throws were were diagrammed to go to him? I mean, that's insanity. I mean, I I think any general manager who heard that from his offensive coordinator would say, my God, what are you doing? (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. Now, they, they went 13-4. and four, so. Well, clearly it worked to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly did. I, I don't know if we're going to see that as a new trend in the league, though, Lance. No, I would not sign up for that, nor would I be promoting that. But see, that's why, and I'm not saying that everybody's agreeing with this concept. Clearly, Matt sort of brushed it a little bit aside. But when I talk about how I think the Packers could be more dangerous this year, I'm not taking into consideration the fact that Devontae Adams is not a significant loss. I understand that. Don't get me wrong. He's a heck of a playmaker. You don't just pluck a guy in off the street and say, okay, he's going to fill the void. But if we just think about this for a second, Paul, if about 80% of your plays are designed to go one way, Clearly, the defense knew coming in, okay, we've got to keep our attention on Devontae Adams. A lot of good that did the Well, Lance. you're right. It didn't, it didn't really slow him down. I get that. But I still would argue Aaron now cannot run 80% of the plays to one guy. And I don't think Matt LaFleur and the Packers offensive staff is going to say one guy now like Amari Rodgers is going to step up. So I think Aaron is going to spread the wealth a little bit more. I think there's going to be some games where this receiver has a big game. Then the next game, it may be another guy. And I do think that puts additional pressure on a defense because I think it keeps you thinking a little bit more, not to mention, Paul, we talk about Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon, who Matt was talking about, that they may be even more involved in the passing game this year. So you add those running backs into the equation, I still believe that it will be a little bit more difficult to get a good gauge and a good read on this Packers receiving core this year. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at a couple of numbers here. Remember what I said to, to our guest over the last two seasons, Aaron Rodgers has put up astronomical numbers. I think it's very interesting to note that when you look at Devontae Adams, those were two of his best three of his career seasons as well. Uh, that's not a coincidence. And I think it, it's, it's rather remarkable when you also look at his catch percentage, uh, well over 70% sure. in each of the last two seasons. Now, why do I bring this up? It goes back to my motto that I continue to push on this program about guys have to make plays for the quarterback. You've got to be able to do something on the other end of that pass to help your quarterback look good. He can't just do it by himself. He can throw a perfect spiral, and if you're not making plays on the other end of that pass, it looks ugly. And so here's what I wonder. Aaron Rodgers, in my opinion, and I've seen this enough of times, he's a crybaby. 
He loves to point fingers. It's never his fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Every time he makes a big mistake in a big spot, there's somebody else to blame. He's got quite an ego on him. And I think that's one of the reasons why most people suggest that his teammates don't like him very much. He'll always have a few who speak out on his behalf. But there are a lot of folks around the league. Heck, when he was in California, that was the knock on him coming out of school is that he was not well-liked on his college team, and he won't be well-liked in an NFL locker room. So here's my question to you. It's a long-winded question. If Devontae Adams isn't there making those plays for him, and they don't have, amongst their other receivers, a guy who will make those kinds of plays, does the relationship between him and his receivers start to deteriorate, and does that wind up becoming an issue? Well, I think if you had a young nucleus of receivers, Paul, that were making the adjustment to the NFL, I could see Aaron getting extremely frustrated to your point with them. For example, the game Devontae Adams missed last season, and I use that as a small sample size, but he did not play against the Arizona Cardinals, and they wound up winning that game. It was a tight game. It came down to the wire, and there were times I remember, because I watched that game from start to finish, it was a Thursday night game, and Aaron threw the ball to one of the young guys that was stepping up and he wasn't in the right spot. And you could tell Rodgers was a bit frustrated. So that's why I go back to if I knew coming in that they were with a bunch of draft picks and guys that have not had a lot of taste in the NFL, I could see that reaching a boiling point. But when you look at the fact that Alan Lazard is a veteran who has made plays, he's going to be in the mix. They still have Randall Cobb. Amari Rodgers has not had a lot of playing time, but I think he could be a breakout player. He's at least been in this offense. He's had time to build some chemistry with Aaron Rodgers. And then Robert Tunyon, who I was talking with Matt about, the tight end coming back from injury, who had 11 touchdowns with Rodgers two years ago. That's a high-volume poll of guys that have been here and have been productive that I don't think the frustration is going to be overwhelming because I think that will help offset it. Now, those guys are still going to have to make plays, and those guys are still going to have to step up. There's no doubt about it. But I think he's got somewhat of a security blanket where with those four or five guys that I named, Paul, I don't think Aaron is going to go into every game and saying, oh, here we go again. Who am I going to throw to? Who can I rely on? Because I do think he has some guys that have proven they could be more than just flashes in this league. I understand that. I don't see anybody, though, making the kinds of plays as often as an Adams will make. And quite frankly, Sammy Watkins has bounced around this That's league That's a new guy added. Yep. For a, yeah, he's bounced around this league for a while because he continues to perform under his potential. He's had, obviously, a lot of drop issues over the course of his career. And I just don't know how well Aaron Rodgers will tolerate the drop-off. Remember, Devontae Adams set a very high bar. I mean, I think Absolutely. a lot of folks would, would say right now he's the best receiver in football, right? Well, and also as far as consistency, execution, making plays. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's not going to have that guy anymore. He That safety blanket for some of the throws he makes, that guy's not going to make those plays, so that 50-yard gain isn't going to be there. Now, in fact, instead of third and 11 and a 50-yard gain for a first down, you're punting the football. I don't think Aaron Rodgers is going to sit well with that. But as you say, maybe the veteran receivers on the team, the Randall Cobbs of the world, etc., will make the plays necessary to move the chains. Maybe they won't be spectacular. Maybe they won't be 50 yards down the field. Exactly. But maybe they'll do enough 
to get this offense uh, to be efficient once again. And that's exactly what I'm expecting, Paul, the way you just described it. Because here's the thing. Let's go to some other interesting numbers from last season, which I think spells out what Devontae did in comparison to the rest of the team. Devontae Adams was targeted 169 times last season in 16 games because I mentioned he missed the one game against Arizona. Do you know the next guy on the list, Paul, in terms of targets, how much lower do you think the next guy on the list, you don't have to give me an exact number, but how much of a disparity was there in targets? I'm not talking about receptions. Between Devontae Adams and the second receiving threat for the Packers last season. Well, I see, unfortunately, I had brought up the stats in preparation for the interview, so it's it's not fair. Okay, so then forget that. Well, then I'll at least rip out the intrigue and the tease, and I'll go right to the numbers. Aaron Jones was number two. He had 65 targets. That is more than 100 less than Devontae Adams. And then if you want to go to just receiver, that would be Alan Lazard had 60. Mm -hmm. So he also had over 100 less than Devontae Adams. So now you're taking 100 targets, and you are now spreading that. This is my argument, Paul. You're spreading that across the board. I don't think there's going to be one guy in particular. For example, Aaron Jones, to me, is not going to go from 65 targets to 100. He may go up to 85. I could see him take a boost to 20, but I don't think anyone else is going to make an astronomical jump. I think they're going to take those 100 targets, and they're going to say, Aaron gets 15. Allen gets 20. A.J. Dillon gets 5. Randall Cobb gets 15. Well, you know, that's the type of balance I could see across the board. If they spread it around, it certainly means that when the Giants play them in London, the uh, corners and the safeties, that secondary is going to have to do a really good job of keeping their eyes and ears open to make sure that their communication's right and yep. they're in the right place at the right time so that Aaron Rodgers does not have as many options to throw the ball to. And then, of course, uh, let's not forget about the offensive line issue that he talked about with Bakhtari. Uh, If there's any way in the world that that Packers offensive line can be exploited in Week 5, you would like to think that Wink Martindale could be the guy to do it. Well, and we've seen, even from previous experience with the Giants going up against Aaron Rodgers, if you get some pressure on him, you you could throw him off guard. So that's absolutely going to be the key. And you figure, hey, maybe by the fifth week, some of these young guys in the pass rush has a better feel for what McMartindale wants to do because they already would have had four games under their belt. Now, keep in mind, as we discussed with Matt, they played the bulk of last season without David Bakhtiari. However, Elton Jenkins, who filled in for him, is now also sidelined due to injury. And you lost some of the other players that you moved around. So it's a little bit different, the dynamics, in terms of making way without Bakhtiari last season versus this season. But, hey, in fairness, Paul, if you want to say the Giants will be a little bit more comfortable, right, by the fifth week of the season with respect to their pass rush, you could argue Green Bay may feel a little bit more comfortable in terms of their offensive line alignment now that they're going to be without Bakhtiari, assuming he's not back by then, and Elton Jenkins for a few games. Maybe they have a better read on, okay, This is the guy we're going to utilize at right tackle. This is the guy we're going to utilize at left tackle. So I think it goes both ways, maybe, with respect to that. One thing that I think a lot of us sometimes overlook, and obviously, again, we're looking into the crystal ball, but it's who do you play going into a certain game and who does the opponent play? The Packers are going to be coming off a very tough game, I'm sure, against the Patriots. And the week before, they're in Tampa to take on the Buccaneers. Those are two rough and tough games for them to have to come into the Giants game in London. And, you know, if you if you play the rivalry card, 
In fact, three games before they play the Giants, they've got the Bears at Lambeau. Now, I don't think the Bears are particularly that good this year. In fact, I think the Giants should have a, a relatively easy time against them the week before they go to London themselves. But the Giants' three games leading in are the Panthers, Cowboys, and Bears, and the Packers have the Bears, the Buccaneers, and the Patriots. Uh, a little bit of a tougher road to hoe for the pack uh, for the Packers when you talk about that game in London on October the 9th. And that certainly fits into the equation, especially when it comes to picking up tendencies on film. If a previous team tried to go after the offensive line in this area, maybe you look to do the same. I think all of those things are in play. I just think it's fair to say the Giants and the Packers, by the time we get to week five, there's questions for both teams that they'll have an opportunity to explore a little bit in the first quarter of the season, and maybe that gives you a better read or a better idea of what you're walking into when you go to London. So we obviously are continuing to preview the Giants' opponents as we now have made our way through week five, so we can continue to do that in the days coming as well as throughout the course of July. Now, a few reminders here before we get back to the conversation. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Before we resume the conversation, just a few things of note with respect to the program. We are taping our next few shows, so they are not going to be live at noon Eastern, but they're going to be put up very quickly on Giants.com, the mobile app, and your favorite podcast platform. So we're going to have a show on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. We are not going to have a show on Friday, and then all of next week, the office is closed, so we are not going to have any programs the week of July 4th. We'll be back up and running the following week, just so that you understand if you're not seeing an update on your podcast platform, it's got nothing to do with your program. It's got nothing to do with the fact that the show has stopped. It's just that's the layout of the land, at least for the upcoming days, and then we will resume our normally scheduled program the following week. So just wanted to get a few items of note out of the way. We certainly appreciate everybody tuning in regularly from that standpoint. Something else, Paul, that I wanted to tap into, which brings the conversation back to the New York Giants. Daniel Jones recently spoke with Paul Schwartz of the New York Post, and he talked about a variety of things, how critical this season is. And I don't think it was surprising anything in particular that Daniel said, but what I think he did emphasize, and I think anyone that has followed his career thus far, is he's not going to give you a soundbite or a quote where he's going to say, this is going to be an overwhelming season for me. 
I can't believe all the pressure on me. I've got to deal with the fact that I'm a lame duck quarterback. I want to play hard because I'm due a new contract. I want to prove to the Giants. He's not never going to give you that. So I don't think anybody should expect him to say that. But I think what he did acknowledge was that there are things that he could do with respect to his game to improve as much as other things that people want to point to the environment alone contributed. And, you know, in this day and age, it's very easy. You were talking about Aaron Rodgers pointing the finger. Daniel has not shied away from holding himself accountable in a certain regard, right, and saying, hey, you know, the onus is also on me as a quarterback that I need to do certain things to also help this offense as well. Well, again, he learned that from Eli Manning. Sure. It's no coincidence. Uh, we knew coming in he was much like Eli from the get-go. And then having the opportunity to be a teammate of Eli's, it only stood to reason that he was going to maintain that same type of personality. He's a very responsible young man. I mean, you know, he is here every hour that he can possibly be here when the CBA allows it. And to be frank with you, Lance, right now, no one's allowed here in terms of the healthy players. You, you, you know, you're not supposed to be here. It's a, the seven-week blackout period, basically, with the CBA, unless you're rehabbing an injury and have to visit with the trainers. I'm telling you right now, we know Daniel Jones has been totally cleared from his neck thing from last year, but if they would let him in the building, <laughs> he would be here. <laughs> He'd sleep Trust in. me, yeah. that's just the way this young man is. Uh, he's very, very dedicated to his craft. And um, part of that means you have to take responsibility for what you do. And so, uh, you know, I haven't seen or heard anything from Daniel Jones that indicates he's feeling the pressure or the heat of being in the final year of his contract. I think he understands. He knows it. It's reality. He's dealing with the fact that, okay, they didn't pick up his option. He's got a new coach, a new coordinator, a new general manager, and he's well aware of the task at hand. His position seems to be, I'm just going to attack it. I'm going to do everything I can to maximize the production that I can have, and everything will fall where it falls at the end of the season. Kind of like what Joe Judge, uh, not Joe, uh, Aaron Judge did with the Yankees. If you think about it, right? Now, he was in a different position in that he's had an accomplished career. Sure, the level of production a little bit different. Right, right. And he was offered a great deal. But what did he say? Nope, not going to do it. And oh, by the way, we're not going to talk till after the season about this. And Aaron Judge has not said boo since the beginning of the season about contract negotiations, his desire to make more money, uh, the pressure on putting up. Every time he's asked anything like that, oh, nope, just just going about my business, just trying to help the team win. He avoids the subject like the plague. And I see the same attitude in Daniel Jones, avoiding the subject like the plague. It's about him just going out there. And if I could take a quote from Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, do your job. It's really that simple. Well, it's interesting you brought up Aaron Judge because, see, Judge received an extension offer, turned it down, and basically said, hey, I'm betting on myself. Based on the market, I can do better. Now, Daniel didn't have the luxury of being offered not. an extension to turn down, but 
the reason why I'm saying there is somewhat of a similarity is Daniel, essentially, he's betting on himself now too, right? Because he understands, based on how I perform, will A, help my cause, and B, help the team's cause. And if well, I'm that's productive... That's what he's got. Yeah. Well, of course, he has no control over the other things. And that's the other thing why I think that Daniel is not necessarily on an island compared to other quarterbacks because you have a new front office coming and a new coaching staff. Part of me feels, I don't think Daniel is shocked the Giants' decision. I think even if you ask Daniel deep down inside to give an honest assessment, you have individuals that didn't draft you. You have individuals that haven't coached you and haven't been around you. You have not proven to stay healthy. Your numbers have been up and down. Is it really that stunning that a team is not going to walk in the building, Paul, and say, you know what, even though we still want to get a feel for you, yeah, we're going to pick up the option. I think from a business perspective, that's just a smart decision that most companies, organizations, even if you want to take it out of football, would probably make. So part of me doesn't think Daniel is stunned. He just now, I think, is coming to grips with, I could still control my own destiny, but it's now on me to handle that both as an individual and then hope that improvements on the team coincide with that. Well, I mean, only a, a, a fool, and I'm not trying to make fun of his situation in any way, would look at his first three years in the league and say, okay, uh, I missed a handful of games in my first year. I missed a couple of more games in my second year, and I missed even more than a handful of games in my third year, and expect that a team is going to commit any type of long-term money to him. I mean, you're 1,000% correct. If his agent is worth anything, he sat down with Daniel before any of this conversation even went down about you know the media pushing for, is it going to be a 50-year option or not? And, and he told him, Daniel, guess what? You've missed games in each of your first three seasons. It's not prudent business-wise for them to guarantee you anything for next year. You've got to stay on the field. I mean, you know, it's common sense. 100%. But it's worth at least emphasizing because sometimes, you know, that doesn't necessarily pop up on the surface when you at least cool, calm, and collected take a step back and maybe remove yourself from the emotions of things. And in line with that, this to me was one of his interesting quotes in this New York Post article. He actually was asked about John Mara's comments in late January. Remember, Paul, when he came out and he said, hey, we haven't done everything we could to help out Daniel Jones. Paraphrasing, he said, we basically essentially have done everything to screw up the kid. And I'm right. paraphrasing his comment. So Daniel was asked about that comment and whether or not he agrees with it. Is that a fair assessment? So this was his response. Quote, I don't know if it took me aback, referring to John Mara's comments. I don't know. I think it would be a mistake for me to, I feel fully responsible for how I've played. And to feel differently than that would be a mistake. We haven't won. I haven't played as well as I need to win games. I've got to be real with myself and honest with myself looking back on things. That's the only way I'm going to improve and we're going to improve, end quote. And I think that pretty much falls in line, Paul, with what you and I were talking about. He and his representatives are being realistic in terms of what transpired over the last three seasons. And here's the other thing that's important to note, and I think it's important for Daniel to understand Daniel could very well have a solid season, and his numbers could be respectable. But even with all that being said, that still doesn't mean, and I want to emphasize this to our listeners and Giants fans, that still may not say to Joe Shane and Brian Dable, 
we absolutely need to commit to him long term with a multi-year deal. We still may want, and I'm talking through their lens, my opinion. You mean we, the tag? Correct, the tag, or what you and I have also discussed, a deal where the Giants have a little bit more wiggle room or Daniel has wiggle room, whether it's a player option or a team option, that you can still move on after a year or two and you're not locked up into things for four to five years. I suspect the Giants hierarchy will do everything in their power not to go that way. I agree with you that that could be a So meaning, I don't mean to cut you off, Paul. So you're saying that let's say he has a solid season. And what I mean by let's say he gets back to the respectability of his rookie campaign. Two to one ratio, touchdowns, interceptions. Mm -hmm. Giants are a little bit more respectable, competitive on offense. You think in your mind, your estimation, that still would push them more in the direction of security with a long-term deal? I think it would. No, I just wanted to understand where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, because I I think in their minds – I think that Dable and and Shane want to have confidence that they can identify if the guy's the right guy or not. And I think the the avenue that you're talking about, while it's a viable option, and I totally concur with you, that would be one of the doors and one of the roads you could go down. It makes some sense. There is some logic in it. I also think that's more of a hedge than the other options. And I suspect that Dayball and Shane, and again, I don't know these guys well enough yet, but my guess from from getting to know them a little bit is that they would like to have confidence in their decisions and they will be assertive and they'll say, boom, this is what we're doing. I don't sense from either one of those guys that they like the hedge route, if that makes any sense. No, I get that. I'm just, I'm looking at, and I understand, hey, Buffalo's a different circumstance, but the two of them were there for Josh Allen from the get-go. They helped him and saw his development up close and personal. So when Brandon Bean, who is obviously still the Bills general manager, when they worked out that extension last summer, they had multiple years of being with him and multiple years of tangible evidence, Paul, to say, we've seen the jump. We've seen the maturation. We've seen the team improve as a product of Josh Allen's play. And you can understand that gives you security to justify giving Josh Allen that level and that type of a deal. Year one with Daniel Jones, and even if he does take a few steps forward... It's, to me, A, not comparable to the Buffalo situation because you're lacking the volume of years. And that, to me, is the only way that I can back their track record of handing out extensions. In fairness, Dable had not been a head coach previously and had not always been an offensive coordinator working solely with the quarterback. So I don't really have another example to give you. And Joe Shane was never a general manager previously. So I'm only going by how they went about their process, Paul, in Buffalo. And even if Daniel, once again, has a respectable season, that to me is not nearly as much evidence as what you did to justify the Josh Allen deal. So that's the only, at least, means that I'm coming from. Well, it's fair to say that Josh Allen's second season was a prove-it season, I think, to most people in Buffalo, if not around the league, that this guy was going to be good, really good. Yeah. His first season, obviously, as a rookie, uh, some some ups and downs, without a doubt. Now, you know, I, I was always a Josh Allen guy from the very get-go coming out of the draft. So I was waiting for that second season to happen, and, and it came to fruition, uh, as I expected. But you're right. In this particular case, 
uh, Dable and Shane may be backing themselves into a corner if they decide not to go the hedge route by trying to make a decision or a definitive decision, I should say, on Jones after only one season. I do think they will try very hard within their mental capacity to try to make that decision after one season. I think they will try their damnedest to do it. And if they still can't come to a consensus, then we may wind up seeing the hedge, as you have suggested. I don't think they want to go that way, though. Because, Alan, just to give you an idea, you were referencing that second season. I mean, he improved his touchdown total. He doubled it from 10 to 20. His interceptions went slightly down. He improved in his completion percentage, his passing yards. There were indicators, and, of course, the team was winning more games. So there was a lot to evaluate from year one to year two to then feel even better about the investment you make. And remember, the investment then didn't happen until actually after the third year because he got the deal last summer Mm -hmm. entering year number four. So that's the only reason why I use that as a comparison. But before we wrap up, Paul, just out of curiosity— when you say they wouldn't necessarily want to put themselves in that corner, is it more of a concern about the message you're sending to Daniel Jones or the message you're sending as an organization that you're still maybe on the fence with respect to your quarterback? I think it's both. I think they'd like to avoid both of those things. I don't think they want Daniel Jones to have to believe that uh, he's on shaky ground for yet another season, and I don't think they want the rest of this team to not be sure if they've got their leader in place. That that whole lame duck scenario, and and we know the outside forces will pepper and hammer away at that lame duck scenario more so than the internal forces, though. No Paul, question, in fairness, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. But that's the environment we live in in the 2022 National Football League. The outside forces are things you do have to contend with. And I, I do think that that's just that that's an environment I just don't really believe is appetizing to those two guys. I just don't see it. So clearly a lot to unravel still for the Giants with respect to their evaluation of Daniel Jones is we were referencing an article that. Paul Schwartz wrote in the New York Post after sitting down with the Giants starting quarterback. That is going to do it for Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We will be back up and running on Wednesday. Remember, the show will be taped again and then shortly posted after on Giants.com, the mobile app, and your favorite podcast platform. Speaking of that, today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, it's part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast as we will continue our opponent preview series. For Paul Latino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you on Wednesday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.